Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Scram, the podcast passionate about the Scottish food and drink scene. I'm your host, Rosend Erskine, and on this episode, I speak to Philip Thompson at Donner Castle Hotel, who told me about how along with his brother Simon, they have turned their passion for whiskey into a new business with the opening of Dornoch Distillery. From its crowdfunding inception to their drive for sustainability, Phil shares the evolution of the business alongside the running of the hotel and its famous whiskey bar. His Desert Island jams are more vintage laden than any we've ever heard before too, by the way, so listen out for them. I also chatted with head chef Grant McNichol. He told me all about his colourful career to date, including becoming head chef at the tender age of 19. He also told me about how food prices are a huge challenge for kitchens and how game may be the answer to some of these problems. He provides us with great insight into the unique challenges of running a hospitality business in the Highlands. I'm now joined by Philip Thompson at the Dornoch Distillery um, and we're currently in a, a lovely atmospheric vault in the castle. Could you just tell me a bit about the distillery here and how it all came to be? My brother and I started the distillery in kind of 2015 into 16 uh, with first productions of single malt in 2017. Um, the kind of idea came about um, a lot driven by my brother who we had the bar here at the hotel for many years and kind of had the opportunity to taste loads of amazing old whiskies and we used to open lots of whiskies, go to auctions, buy bottles and got really interested in that kind of side of it, looking at older bottles. And we were finding that the kind of these things that we love to drink were getting more and more expensive and less available when we used to kind of open like all these beautiful old 60s vintages of Isla Malts and you know Klein Leash and things so that we loved and um, we were like okay well what's the difference why are these so different and we we're trying to figure out the production changes that are taking place and it was just through a lot of like own personal research into why like what the differences are in production and we kind of just got a bit obsessed about it and thought well we we should give this a go we should try and see if we can distill and see if we can make in the style that we think a lot of these old distillers used to kind of produce their spirit in, and um, it's not like one single entity. You can't pen, you know, can't say like this was the old, this was the main difference, and that's why these distillates are fatter or fruitier or waxier or whatever. So there's not one single thing. So we thought we'd try and give it a go. So we had this lovely old fire station at the back of the uh, the castle, which was basically just a derelict building that was full of um, storage, and um, we crowdfunded back in twenty. I want to say twenty. 15, late 2015 into 2016, we had a first round of crowdfunding where we basically put together a very, gen- in hindsight, a very generous offer for uh, crowdfunders involving kind of casks and things. Obviously, it was high risk at the time because we had no, you know, we had no proof of concept. We had never done this. We had kind of, you know, it was just an idea in our heads. We'd written the business plan, but it was still, you know, the risk was high. Hence why the reward for the crowdfunders originally was quite high. Um, yeah, we pushed on. We got really great support from the original crowdfunding and we started renovating the building. And um, probably in 20, late 2015, we started renovating the building, buying all the equipment, trying to figure out 
how to distill and how to uh, we had ideas we had done some done some work at Strathern and uh, we had some pretty good ideas and we, we took on a brewer distiller from Harriet Watt as well in the early days uh, he worked with us quite closely and we built uh, built the distillery up from from there um, so it's still micro it's still tiny and we're still producing using our kind of our own principles of production so like our own philosophies we use only heritage varieties of barley they tend to have a kind of higher protein contents than than the modern malting varieties of barley lower starch content higher protein so you get like a less yield less alcohol but you get more potential for flavor creation from these kind of uh, proteins and kind of amino acids and fatty acids that are in the in the barley only long fermentation so minimum seven day fermentation so allow for that kind of secondary fermentation and malolactic fermentation to take place we only use brewer's yeast so nice long fermentations using brewer's yeast so essentially the alcohol is made within a kind of 24 36 hour window where you actually make the alcohol at that point most distilleries would you know maybe leave it for another 12 hours then distill it whereas we're like okay well let's leave it you know for another like four or five days and then kind of see if we can get some more flavor creation one of the other main points, uh, obviously, it's wooden washback, so we kind of that are never fully cleaned, um, and you kind of get a kind of natural colonies of bacteria and the ghost of every yeast that you've ever used is kind of lingering in the woods. Um, so all of these things kind of apply for for kind of flavor creation. You know, they all they all add to it throughout the whole process. Then the distillation, um, you know, we we get the guy. We encourage everyone who works for us to kind of make all the cut points, all the spirit cut points by nose and taste and sight and you know kind of really looking at the spirit and looking at seasonality the type of barley we're using if we've changed the yeast variety and kind of adjusting the cut points depending on the, all of these factors so we're not just going okay this is what we do every single time copy and paste copy and paste copy and paste it's like you know we really embrace the seasonality embrace the different barley embrace the different yeast the effects that these might have and then try and get the best out of the spirit and cut it in a way which you know is is not predetermined, you know, is, is carried out on kind of a daily basis, depending on kind of the, the, the character that we're, we're looking for. And you've got, a, um, you've got a gin as well, is that right? Yeah, so we've, um, we created a gin back in 2016, which had that kind of malt content to it, so 10% single malt. And we've just started phasing that out and we, for something which is a little bit cleaner, also it keeps all of the malt for filling into casks for whiskey, you know, that's kind of why we're doing it. So, but we also created this gin. I wanted to make something that was like, a total crowd pleaser, something that's super clean, super fresh, very bright, very citrusy. So it's 100% organic. So we have a base blend, which is our base botanical blend, it's juniper, coriander seed, and black pepper, um, and other botanicals. And then we run single distillations on top of that of what we get is fresh European citrus in seasons from kind of, you know, October, November until early March we can we can get these fresh seasonal European citrus fruits and what we do is we peel them fresh we vacuum pack them and then we freeze them down you're kind of breaking down the cell walls by each one of those processes so peeling and then you're vacuum packing it compressing it down then you're freezing and you're helping break down the cell walls and that'll allow us to kind of access all those beautiful oils and, and, and esters and flavors that are kind of trapped within the uh, the citrus peel um, so we get European Italian bergamot we get Italian lemons and we get Spanish oranges and they're all peeled fresh. So we've just like, you know, this year we're working our way through, I think our last batch was like 500 kilos of uh, lemon. So it's like a hell of a lot to peel. Um, but it's all done by hand. It'd take like three of us a day to kind of sit there and get through it. But it really makes such a difference to work with fresh um, citrus over dried citrus. You get such a brighter flavor. Um, I sometimes find personally for my taste, the dry you get this kind of it's a little heaviness to it um that the the fresh 
doesn't you don't really get that with the fresh citrus so that's kind of one of the main things we also use fresh bay fresh rosemary fresh thyme and then a single distillation of pep of uh, juniper as well so the bay is processed fresh as well which i think you know, if, if you're if you like to cook, fresh bay versus dried bay is a completely different flavor. You know, it's, it's a completely different flavor. And I love bay. It's like like it's like a flavor enhancer. It brings everything together. So it's like you know, you, you put together a casserole or a stew or something. You always put a bay leaf in there, and you're not quite sure what the bay leaf does, but you know it does something. And it tends to just kind of bring everything together and add this kind of really nice kind of base note to it. Um, so yeah, the, that's that's kind of how we approach the gin. And then we also now do take the approach of almost like a whiskey blender and we'll blend it to taste every single time. We'll try and get a bit, bit more kind of balance. We don't have like a set, you know, it's always this much lemon, always this much orange. It's kind of based on, you know, we might have different citrus coming through. The distillation cut points might be slightly different. We might have a little bit more kind of heads, you know, kind of brighter notes from the citrus heads coming in and one distillate that we're happy with that don't cloud, they're not oily and we want to bring them into production. So we kind of blend it like a whiskey blender. And I think we're super happy with the product. Um, now we've got, a, we just got gold in the World Gin Awards for Scottish Contemporary Gin. Um, so that was kind of kind of cool, nice to be recognised that we're, we're making a very good product by people who are in the industry, which is quite nice. So we're hoping to see um, a little bit more uptake on that because we're super happy with it. And it's getting in some great venues as well now. We're getting it kind of listed in a lot of cool, very, very good venues and uh, good level of support. Um, but yeah, just a nice crowd please, a really nice fresh and clean and bright kind of gin. And um, you know, it helps, definitely helps kind of us make our very expensive malt whiskey or expensive by production standards. You know, it's not going to be expensive, as expensive at the far end as a matter of pence on the bottle, but on the front end, it, you really feel that cost. So the gin really helps kind of support that as well. And they both sound quite handcrafted compared to some other places. Is that something that you want to continue? Keep it quite small, keep it quite in keeping with, you know, what people, like you say, there's not machinery doing your cut points. So is that something that you, you want to continue on into the future? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's really important to us. We're, we've got quite um, big plans to expand and expand. You know, we're 12,000 litres of pure alcohol of, of single malt spirit every year. So it's, it's basically not a lot. It's like tiny by the industry standards. But we're also, we're looking to expand to about 150, 200,000 LPA. And we want to take the same, exactly the same approach. So we want to be organic wherever possible. We want to be basically as energy efficient as possible throughout the whole process without sacrificing the quality of the the final spirit um, so we're you know we're looking at like solar arrays we're looking at like ways of energy recapture of storage of water reuse of water and so on so these things are all really important to us but what's more important is also having people do the work for us and actually feel involved and be part of the process and not so when our guys come into work whatever they're doing it's something new and something different almost every single time and they feel kind of stimulated and challenged in their work and I think that's really important um, so we're not we don't have any plans to kind of really automate it or anything so we're going to take the same approach as we are now really hands-on kind of production and obviously it's going to be more employee which is great and um you know, hopefully keep employing young folk from the area who, who have an interest in, in, in whiskey and producing whiskey and then keep them challenged. You know, I think that's really important. So, um, yeah, we're going to maintain the production um, as best we can. And um, like I said, keep it organic. We're going to stick to brewer's yeast, long fermentations. All of these things are going to make a, a big difference in what we're, what we're trying to achieve. So you and your brother used to run the bar here? Yes. So have you always been into whiskey? Uh, yeah, I mean, since quite an early age. I mean, our parents bought the hotel in 2000 and I would have been sort of 15 we used to kind of like dry glasses 
behind the bar and sort of help out wherever possible. And then obviously, when you're working with a bartender who just like would disappear on cigarette breaks, <laughs> like randomly disappear, you're sort of like stood behind the bar and somebody's asking for something. You're like, oh well, okay. You know, fat small family business. It's just kind of what you do. You just have to get on with it. There's not really much choice. But yeah, we did have a, a decent selection of whiskey behind the bar um, at that time. It, I mean, it was maybe like 40 bottles, kind of standard Scottish whiskey bar, um, but. I think as me and my brother, we went away to college and university. We came back on holidays always with these sort of like, you know, after after university and college, it's like, what do you want to do? Well, I'm not quite sure. You know, so it's like, we'll just work for a while and, and help out. And um, as a result, we came back and my brother had been here a little longer than me and was buying whiskey for the bar. You know, he was kind of restocking it and um, he was finding that the stuff he was buying was, was selling and it was selling well, there was a good interest. He was becoming interested in it. His passion was helping kind of transfer to the customer who was then getting really interested in experimenting and trying a few different things when they'd come into the bar instead of just coming and buying one whiskey and leaving. That, that kind of knowledge, that good kind of level of service really helped. Um, then from there we started buying older bottles and that's really where we got kind of hooked is like looking at these older distillates and, and uh, looking at how they were made and we'd start going to auctions and picking up bottles and opening them and sharing them and trying them and talking about them and discussing the production and what they were doing and why 10 year old Laphroaig from the 60s is different to 10 year old Laphroaig bottled in the 90s or the early 2000s and trying to kind of establish these kind of points of difference in it and that's kind of where our obsession on, on old style old style whiskey came from so yeah I mean if we can make anything that's like you know 1% as good as 1960s Laphroaig I think we'll be we'll be very happy you know that's kind of would be a nice kind of starting point to aim for and have you ever had anything behind the bar that there's people going you shouldn't open that because you could have sold you know what it's like now things have gone a bit kind of mental with old and rare and auctions have Absolutely. you do you very much believe it should be drank or do you have you seen something and thought oh, we should keep that well it's a, it's yeah i mean if the liquid if i don't think the liquid's good enough and there's a little bit of a balance to be had i mean we've opened so many amazing bottles over the years that are i mean the bottom of that cabinet there you've got like cadenhead's uh Lefroy 1967 dumpy bottle which is probably four five thousand pounds plus nowadays uh, there's a bottle of Stromness, which is old Orkney bottle that's from Stromness Distillery, which closed in, in Orkney, I think, in the early 20th century. Um, we opened that for a show and had that on the bar. We would have made a lot more money that selling the bottle than we ever would selling measures behind the bar and sharing the bottle with our friends. But, you know, at the end of the day, you can't take it with you. So you've got to kind of enjoy it when you when you can. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, you do think nowadays it was easier to justify four or five years ago. You know, the prices were starting to really climb, but they weren't crazy. Now, sometimes you look at the prices and you're going, oh man, this is like, you know, bottles that we used to open that were, okay, say it was a thousand pounds. And even then you're like, well, that's a lot of money for a bottle of whiskey. Now they're like four or five thousand pounds. You're going, oh, well, if we were to ever open that in the bar, you would never recoup. Like you'd never be able to sell it at a price point to recoup any of that money so you can never replace the bottles in your bar anymore i suppose that's the thing you know we have a stock of old bottles but the, the way i'm looking at it now is i'm going okay well it's really hard to restock and buy the good old bottles back in so we have to kind of like maybe diversify uh, diversify a wee bit and try and find some some other things that are a bit different that people are interested in so there's a lot of kind of modern bottlings coming out that we try and keep stocked on stocked up with that people are quite interested in but it's becoming really difficult and even now to like the modern bottles just to try and get like a bottle of Springbank local barley for your bar is like a you know it's a total hustle it's just it's ridiculous and you know um 
you're like, we're a bar, we open this, you know, you, your product goes on display and gets shared, but then everyone's hustling for the same bottles. And mm-hmm. It's definitely becoming more and more difficult. But yeah, I mean, I'm glad, Leo, looking around the room with the empty bottles and things like that, it's, there's so many amazing bottles we opened over the years and we will keep doing it. It's just like the really super rare stuff maybe kind of tempered a little bit you know we may not open as many as we used to um and but we still got great stuff on the bar i mean you've got 1957 talisker cast strength from gordon mcphail bottled 80s you've got 1973 talisker that was bottled for odd bins in about 2001 there's only ever 100 bottles of that made um and so there's a lot of amazing stuff 1973 highland park dragon sherry cask so there's there's loads of great stuff still open in our bar we try and keep it interesting we've got a good selection of japanese whiskey you know some nice spring bags from the kind of more modern era but yeah it's not as jam-packed with the rarities as it used to be because it's becoming a lot more difficult but we do try and season the bar as best we can with nice bottles and then there's your whiskey is it out and available for everybody now yes and no um so we're a couple of things we do so we haven't touched on it but we're an independent bottler so that's a big part of our business so we will buy third-party casks uh, we have a warehouse here in Dornick we do all of our bottling and distribution from Dornick um, so that's a big part of our business now with regards to Dornick because our production is so low it's like you know 10 12,000 litres of pure alcohol a year which is really not a lot um, it's very limited so we've only ever up until this point released one cask which was in November 2020 so last year, in the last financial year, we didn't release any of our own liquid. Um, and it's just because of the availability, you know, we'd rather, if we don't have to sell it, we'd rather just sit on it and keep it and mature it a bit longer. We are about to release a couple of casks. One's going to be for export and trade only, and one's going to be for our website only, which is kind of something we try and do is find a bit of balance between supporting the retailers and our importers as best we can, but also, you know, you do need the it makes financial sense to sell it on your website as well so it's kind of finding that balance to kind of make sure everyone's happy in the supply chain because you know whiskey's booming at the moment but you've also like your importers and especially retailers you have to kind of support them because they've always been there and they've always been pushing kind of whiskey when perhaps it wasn't as booming as it is now so we need to kind of make sure these guys are looked after even though we're in a bit of a kind of a boom cycle on whiskey um but yeah so there will be more more available but it's again a super limited quantities you're talking like one cask at a time and from that cask it might be spread amongst like 12 export markets and you know like 12 different retailers in the uk so it's, it is difficult to get but the best thing to do is for people to look at our website and sign up to our mailing list and then that's the best way to get information on what before anyone else and what's happening nice and so the last part of the podcast is um, Desert Island drams. So if you could only take three whiskies to Desert Island, what would they be and why? Oh, right, okay. This is, uh, I mean, I could I could sit and chew this over and mull this over over like 24-hour period. Um, off the top of my head, I would probably, it would have to be something, a Bonfant import Lafroig from the mid-70s, bottled for the Italian market, 10-year-old, so standard 10-year-old Lefroy, bottled for Italy in the 70s uh, from Bonfant. Was ama- these are incredible. One of those, I could literally drink that all day. It's like tropical f- fruit juice seasoned with peat. Um, that, for me, is probably one of my all-time just 
favourite whiskies. Maybe something like a old Brora, uh, so something from the kind of original Kleinleach distillery, maybe an early 70s vintage or 60s unpeated vintage that are kind of these waxy kind of whiskies full of kind of motor oils and old copper coins and really kind of old style flavours. So something from the Brora Kleinleach stable from the 60s, 70s. And just for, or oh, you could say 60s Springbank as well, but um, for sheer joy, probably a mid 60s mid 60s Beaumore from something like a phenol cask or a refill bourbon so really kind of lush and tropical kind of fruit flavour um, that would be yeah so that's kind of broad so 60s Laphroaig if anybody wants to give me any 60s Brora slash Klein Leash and uh, probably 60s Beaumore nice and lush and tropical something like that it's quite exciting that Brora's reopened yes it is very exciting and I hope that I love what they, they're doing. I love that they've reopened Brora. They've obviously made it extremely premium and that kind of frustrates me a little bit and I get it because the liquid's very rare, but also I think big companies need to remember that, you know, the likes of Port Ellen and Brora, these brands were kept alive by people opening and sharing bottles for at like whiskey shows you know so weird geeky guys who are like super into the product like opening them and sharing them and sample sharing and you know starting this myth behind these these distillates um so yeah i feel they've kind of excluded a lot of people with their pricing on their tours like 300 and whatever it is 300 and 400 or 500 something like that and it's just like it's it's you've kind of excluded a huge audience of people that would i mean i i would say i'd love to go for a tour of brora and I would probably pay like a hundred pounds and I'd be like, okay, I'm, that's a one-off. I'll just do that once. But like, you've kind of shown your cards and been like, okay, well, you know, thanks very much for keeping our brand alive for, you know, the past 30 years, but sorry, if you don't have enough money, you can't really come in and see what we've, see what we've done. So I don't really like that aspect of it where it's just kind of seems to me a little bit more financially driven than from the passion perspective. Um, and perhaps they need to kind of rethink it moving forward that their price points certainly for the tours are, are not ideal and not very accessible and it's, it seems to me it feels as a whiskey geek who has opened dozens and dozens of bottles of amazing old Brora and put them on our bar and talked about them and talked about the brand for years you know I don't feel it's accessible to me and the sort of people that I would engage with but then it's maybe accessible to people who are members of Skeepo Castle and <laughs> fly into Royal Dornick by helicopter or fly from Carnoustie to Dornick to play golf. Klein Leash is great. Klein Leash have really, they've, they've, I think they do a brilliant, they have a brilliant tour at Klein Leash for uh, a really fair amount of money. I can't remember what it is, but it's, it's really fair and it's a great tour and they've got a beautiful bar. Yeah, that kind of ultra premiumization of whiskey where it's like no longer just, you know, quite a premium product. It's like an ultra premium product. It's no longer accessible to the people I think who really kept the brand alive and really talked about it and loved it um, but it's now for the ultra wealthy uh, which I'm not sure I'm super comfortable with because at the end of the day the stocks of these old casts are going to run out at some point and then you're going to be left with the spirit that you were producing from what 2022 or 2021 onwards so at some point you're going to have to go oh actually uh, the price is now whatever it is you know 100 pounds a bottle 150 pounds a bottle for a 10 year old brewer or 12 year old brewer or whatever when you have no stocks of you know 1980 that you can charge 5,000 pounds a bottle for you know so at some point they're going to have to revert back to 
marketing to kind of a more broad audience. You don't do tours here, do you? We don't, no, but we do have plans for expansion and as part of that we will try and include tours. Uh, But we obviously encourage people to come to Dornich and visit the whiskey bar it's really important we've got sort of you know a nice nice whiskey community in Dornick there's a nice whiskey shop and we've got the bar and um, long term we will start doing tours but I'm not quite sure um, kind of to what extent and what price point it definitely won't be 300 quid a tour you know that much <laughs> thank you very much you're welcome thank you So I'm now joined by Grant McNichol, who is the head chef at Dorner Castle Hotel. Hi, Grant. Hello there. How are you? Fine. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad at all. So anyone that's visited the castle will know you by your name at the restaurant. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so how long have you worked here? So I've I've been here over two stints. So I was here 2003 to 2000, tail end of 2007. Um, so I really cut my teeth at Dorner Castle um, when I was a, a young chef. Um, ended up taking over as head chef at, at the young age of 19. Um, so, uh, yeah, myself and, and, and Phil, uh, who we just met, uh, we were both very young and sort of um, in senior positions at the hotel at the time. So uh, Colin uh, Thompson uh, obviously allowed us to, to flourish as youngsters and taught us a lot. Um, and then I came back four years ago this month, actually, um, to open the restaurant and uh, the vault. Uh, the fine dining side of the of, of the establishment. Nice. And where did you go in between time? Uh, sort of a mystery tour of Scotland, really. Um, so when I first left, I went down to uh, Tariff uh, in Aberdeenshire and opened a gastro pub in um, the Five Farms. Uh, then after that, I got, uh, well, I suppose, headhunted, really, to go to Simpsons in Aberdeen, which is now the Chester on Queen's Road. I was executive chef there with a team of 18 at 22, I think. Still pretty young still learning really um so that was a that was a that was a big job and then i got involved with a consortium of investors and opened my first restaurant in uh, pit scotty in fife after that um we had uh, i was called grant McNichol at harvey Maguire's, so it was my first sort of restaurant after that i got in in tow with a restaurateur in dundee and we opened the byzantium restaurant group um, which was a Mediterranean cuisine um, type establishment uh, in the heart of Dundee. And we opened a second one in Perth um, and we had a great five years. Um, it was really, really good. And then basically it just ran its course and um, one of the directors had left and opened another restaurant, which was more or less a, a copycat of, our, of, of the Byzantium. And we just decided that at that point we were going to rent out the, the space and allow someone else to have a go of the restaurants. So... After that, I went to Rufflets in St Andrews as head chef, which was was great. I really enjoyed that. It was a a big wedding venue and we had our own uh, garden there, uh, full-time gardener. So a lot of the produce on the menu came from the garden, which was absolutely superb. Uh, Then I got approached by Phonap Castle up in Pitlochry. Um, the general manager that had taken over there was from Fife, uh, Niall Thompson, and he approached me and asked me if I'd like to take over as executive chef at uh, Phone Up Castle, which I did. And my previous business partner got back in touch with me in Fife with regards to opening a chain of uh, coffee shops and another restaurant. So uh, I left Phone Up to go and do that. I'd done that for a wee while and realised that 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 side of the business wasn't really interesting me. I missed the sort of more fine dining side of things. And um, Colin phoned me up and asked if I could help him find a new head chef for Dorner Castle. At the time, uh, I was I was free as a bird, I suppose, and I just decided to come back up. And um, with the caveat that we were going to open a fine dining side of the business and also that I could open the restaurant here at Dorner Castle. And have you always known you wanted to be a chef? Like, have you always been into food? And Yeah, I think so. I mean, I was a waiter. I started off in dishes here in Dornach when I was in school. 
the Malin House Hotel, which isn't even here anymore, at 12 years old, and I've been in the industry ever since. Waitering, uh, dishes, I've done housekeeping, I've done you know, Somali, I've done all aspects of the business, but uh, I really enjoyed the, the, the kitchen side. Uh, I've done a year at North Highland College once I left school um, with my then boss at the Elbster Arms in Hulkirk. And uh, Stephen really, really taught me a lot about about the industry and really gave me a passion for for cooking. Uh, at the time, he was the only rosette establishment in, in the whole of of, of Caithness, so and one of the first in between Caithness and Sutherland. So, um, the standard of food was very high, and it really got me excited about it at a young age. At fifteen, I was already in the kitchen cooking and and, and really enjoying it. And do you come from a family of kind of foodies, or was it just so, something? Uh, my my background, um, uh, my dad was a gamekeeper. Um, so we lived in a very, very, very uh, rural area of just up from Cambrace on an estate called Baden Loch, um, up the Strathacle Donnan, so single track road for 50, 60 miles before you get to it. And just up the road from Baden Loch is the most remote hotel in Scotland. I think it might be one of the most remote hotels in Britain called the Garvel Hotel. Uh, no power, uh, it has to run off a generator. I still think to this day it must run off a generator and uh, it's right in the middle of nowhere um, and it was just a mile up the road from the estate. So even as a young a, a young lad, I was in the kitchen there with Calf who'd done the cooking for the fishing guests and the shooting guests. I was around that a lot, but from the gamekeeping side of things, uh, we used to get snowed in up there quite often. So you had to really use the land um, f- you know, to get your, your dinner. So from a very young age, I understood that using the produce and, and respecting the produce was, was very important. And I've continued that through my menus um, all, all the way through my career. And have you found that people are a bit more into that in, in recent years than maybe they were a few years ago? Well, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, I've just recently uh, had a conversation with, uh, with our guy Game here, a local uh, game dealer I've known all my life. Our dads played rugby together and we played rugby together as kids. So we've just had the conversation. My brother's still in the industry. He's still a gamekeeper. Um, he's a gamekeeper local here up in Tresor. So we're just talking about the food cost and food miles and the thing that game has always been seasonality. You can only use it in the season because it's only fresh then. But the big conversation we're having at the moment is the food cost, you know, lamb, beef. We're buying, you know, duck from France at a premium cost on the menu. Food prices have gone up maybe 30, 40% and they're only higher with the current, you know, um, circumstances in the world. So we're really trying to fly the flag for game and, and, and utilise venison maybe more than just for the four months of the year when it's in season. So we're, we're having all these kind of conversations now because, for instance, a venison haunch steak is almost half the price of its beef comparator. So I think it's uh, very, very important that we look at that. Yes, it is a frozen product, but it's been freshly frozen. So that's key. It's a key thing. For chefs, they've always got, it's always got to be fresh. It's got to be fresh. And I agree. I, I totally agree. But in some circumstances, some of the things that were imported from other countries there's no guarantee that's not been frozen before or or and and the food miles that are involved in that um whereas you know i can fully trace where the where the the deer has been has been culled uh, on which estate where it was from i probably know the gamekeeper you know so um i think there's a much better story there and the produce utilizing partridge my brother's got a, a pheasant and partridge shoot on the estate basically we can't get that into the food market it doesn't seem to be something that people are passionate about using so the game dealer is struggling to produce it a profitable state to sell and uh, so the, the actual gamekeepers are getting nothing for the the, the partridge and pheasants that, that, that they're trying to get into the into the shelves and, and get people using it so as chefs I think it's really important that we try and fly the flag for that. It's interesting as well because it's venison and partridge you sort of think they're 
like a normal consumer might think they're quite high end, like they're for you know posh restaurants and whatever. Yeah. But if you, if you found them in a butcher, you'd be cheaper. Right. Absolutely, and plus, um, you know the the protein levels, and the, uh, you know you can't obviously say that venison's organic. It's not because you can't con- you know can't control what it eats. It's a wild animal. But as far as us in the Highlands know, and, and, and you know chefs like Tom Kitchen and, and, and top chefs know that it's some of the best meat you can get, and it's here right in our doorstep. And um, you know the protein levels from a pheasant compared to a chicken is is next, you know, it's, it's night and day. Um, it's just people don't know what to do with it. You know, they, a lot of the time it's it's still in its feather. Um, they don't know how to use it. And yeah, I mean, definitely shows like Master Chef and. Uh, you know, Great British Menu and, and, and things like that are sort of starting to come to that way of thinking and, and try and, you know, show that it's not that difficult to use these things. And it's certainly a lot cheaper, a lot, lot cheaper. Yeah, because the way things are going, people might need to start looking at these. Going to have to, yeah. absolutely. I mean, I, I look at the lamb price this week. We are getting up to the stages of, of a rump of lamb being the same price as a fillet steak. It's scary, you know, and, 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 and beef's only going to go up. I've just recently spoke to my uh, very, very good farmer friend up in Caithness who has his own herd of cattle. He's got his own butchery from that. Uh, during lockdown, he started that, and it's been a huge success. Now, his Aberdeen Angus certified from embryos, Azold Angus, is the best and is actually Aberdeen Angus because a lot of times you see Angus written on the, the, the label but it could just be one third of the animal's Angus and they get away with using it whereas his beef is 100% Aberdeen Angus to the point where the animal's actually got the traditional jawline and mouth space of the original animal and that's so it can eat and graze and get more grass in which you would never think <laughs> and you know Ranald is so passionate about what he does and, and because of his passion, I really want to put his products on the menu here. So, you know, we've had a good talk about that this year, but obviously as chefs, you're like, oh, can I get the steaks? Can I get this guy like that? And a lot of chefs don't think about using the whole animal in the front of the animal. So, you know, you've got to think up smart about having maybe like a trio of beef dish on rather than just putting the prime item on the menu. Yes, it's easy to open a packet and put a steak on, on, on a grill and, and, and serve it and charge a premium for it. But sometimes you've just got to think a bit more out of the box. And that's what we're trying to do here at Doran Castle. We're uh, looking to put taster menu on this year. We do a taster menu in here in the vault. And we're looking to incorporate that into the restaurant this year and really showcase the local produce. I mean, a lot of people talk about it, but I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to trying to do that as well and get the food miles right down. Yeah, that's what was, my next question was going to be. What can people expect then when they come here to dine? Obviously, we've had to adapt. Doran Castle, we're very good at adapting because we've known each other for 20 years. And, you know, the family, myself, the housekeeper, Heather, has been here for, for over 25 years, uh, myself, and Matthew. Matthew's been here for you know five, nearly six years. So the, the key conversations we have, we have to adapt and we have to change. And in and, and the last two years, due to COVID-19, uh, we've been very successful in their changes. To say the standard of food isn't maybe quite the same as it was when I first came back in 2018, 2019. The skill set's not in the kitchen anymore. Uh, a lot of the chefs have just, after lockdown, have decided that they want a life and I don't blame them. You know, uh, 19 hours a day, sometimes in the kitchen, um, it's kind of dying out now. It's not It's not going to be a thing anymore. And chefs are getting to the point now where they're almost at rock star wages and, and it's not sustainable. I know that from being a business owner in the past and I realise that it's good for the industry and it's good that chefs are getting paid what they, what they deserve, but who's going to have to foot the bill for that? It's going to be the customer. And with the way the food prices are going, you know, we don't want to get to the point where it's so expensive a customer can't come out to eat. And we're hoping that's not going to happen. But for us to maintain 
a good level of of, of profit so we can pay the staff and, and get through the winter here at Dorna Castle and, and, and it was very seasonal still in the Highlands which is a real shame even with the North Coast 500 even with golf all these things you still have a very quiet time between November and March really we had our strongest February ever this year which is good to see but you still have to maintain and a lot of these places close a lot of hotels close up here um, and Colin doesn't do that he maintains and the reason he maintains is so he can keep his staff so he opens all winter at a loss so that he can retain his staff for the summer he doesn't need to do that there's a lot of people here you know a lot of staff that get their mortgages paid and, and, and everything else and uh, and it's difficult. It's difficult to, to keep the business going. Um, so even e- even looking at this year, I think from our point of view, uh, the taster menu going on, I'm excited about that. Uh, I need to have a skill set in the kitchen. I've still got a few key roles to fill, but me and everyone else. And uh, just running with a la carte. And in the garden, our idea this year is to do a separate kitchen out there and have pizzas. Yeah, so we've, we've, we've joined a company called Barrel and Stone, which is an artisan pizza company and uh, we just basically follow their specs and we we put out a really really good pizza and it's great for our business because it's relatively easy to put together and you don't need a chef on 20 pound an hour who's needed for the other side of the business where you're putting out you know fine dining food so yeah i think i think they're going to see a lot of seasonality but also things that maybe they're not used to seeing in the summer being on the menu i.e venison you know, of us, say my, my dad and my brother two years ago that I was going to have venison on in March through to uh, June, I probably would have got the door slammed in my face, I think. So you're going to see get shot? Yeah, well, no, <laughs> not quite, not quite. But yeah, I, I think that's uh, where we're at at the moment. That's, that's, my, that's, my, that's my thinking behind it. And simply so I can keep the customer cost down. You know, I don't want to be at a stage where a customer's having to come in here and the cheapest main course is £25. It's not sustainable for them either. So uh, I think that's where we're at at the moment. Nice. Um, essentially good. A lot, like a lot to look forward to for the summer. Hopefully there's good weather, nice pizza. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it's just having a, a few different bows and a few different price points. But even that, a lot of the ingredients imported from Italy. So it, it isn't difficult. And, and the cost of that's gone way up as well. So maybe a pizza that you were buying at £9 last year is now £11. And that's simply because the ingredients that go on it, mozzarella and, and, and the tomato palma, has gone up by nearly 40% in cost to us. We're just going with the guidelines of, of, of the company that, that supplies. Um, so it is an artisan pizza. It's not a it's not your bog standard pizza. Obviously, it's a, it's a sourdough uh, artisan base, but even still, it's a premium product. And people tend to think pizzas with low cost. And, 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 and you know, so you've got to get that point across them. The ingredients that are on top of the pizza are a, a much higher standard than your normal. Yeah, it's been a perfect storm of kind of COVID Brexit. And now everything that's going on with Russia and Ukraine. So, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, suppliers have been in front of me already January, February, and now they've messaged me yesterday to say that expect more food prices increases. And, you know, we're looking at the menu and we're saying, you know, having to put chicken on it up £20 plus. And you're thinking, wow, what is, you know, this is this is starting to get a bit ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And just we've just got to change the menu as much as we can. But again, with other things coming in with regards to, you know, putting macrons and, and, and putting calorie counts and stuff on, on, on the food, it's very difficult for a place like us who likes to change the menu with the seasons and likes to adapt as much as possible, i.e., you know, we've got a, a fish dish on the menu, but that fish hasn't been landed this week and there's another fish coming in. So we tend to do things like fish of the day, uh, traditional old style, but the reason is it's because we can buy at the market 
the, the, the premium product on the day at a price that's affordable for the customer. Nice. Um, so part of the podcast is a quick fire round to do with food. So it's five questions. If you tell me the first thing that comes into your head, that's okay. Yeah. Whenever I'm hungry, I think of... Oh, um, my stepmom's lasagna. Comfort food for me is? I suppose um, yeah, comfort food, a, a really nice roast dinner. Uh, my favourite childhood dessert is? Banoffee pie. My food heaven is? Uh, I would say game. And my food hell is? I had salted shark once from Norway and it was, oh, it was awful. Really? I couldn't get the taste out of my mouth for days. <laughs> so yeah, that's probably my food hell, yeah. Thank you very much. No problem at all. Thank you to Phil and Grant for being my guests on this episode and thanks to you for listening. Please remember to rate, review and subscribe. Scran is a laudable podcast that's hosted and co-produced by me, Rosalind Erskine, and co-produced, edited and mixed by Kelly Crichton.